Welcome to Emran's podcast, episode number 88. This is your host, Suman Silwal. Point I want to make the Nepali people, the Sherpa, the crew made this such an amazing experience, always smiling. Um, I don't think I've experienced this anywhere else in the world, and I've traveled quite a bit. Visit Emran's.com to listen to our previous podcast episodes, links to our social media channels, get race photos, and much more. I'd like to welcome Martin Snake from Huntsville, Alabama, and that's how I know him. But right now, he is in an off location. Uh, Martin, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm doing great. I uh, just ran a Blood Rock yesterday, trying to get ready for Blood Rock 50. Maybe I'll run that, and who knows what it'll do. But you, you are off location. Tell us where you are at this moment. I am, unfortunately, in Switzerland for work. I know, it's a rough life. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm having to spend the week here to do some work at uh, my the corporate headquarters for the company I work for. Definitely. Uh, tell us about uh, how's the weather over there, uh, December, uh, early December. What's the weather like in Switzerland? Every other day there's snow. Um, temperatures are right now mid to upper 20s and a bit colder than that during the night. Uh, they started the Christmas market here Friday night, so uh, slowly but surely getting into the Christmas spirit, uh, which is, can be tough sometimes in Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> but but they're not they don't shut down the place uh, for a little snow over there, correct? Versus Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> they do not. They don't close it down at all, even if they have six feet of snow. So <laughs> yeah, nice to have that. Uh, interesting. Uh, while you're there, are you gonna run? What kind of activity do they do? Like I know they do snow skiing and stuff, correct? Right. You can do just about any any winter sport you can imagine around here. Um, me myself, I've kind of imposed. Uh, running break for about four weeks or immediately following my trip to Nepal to have an off season I've been quite busy all year running so I figured it's probably not a bad idea to take a break however um, that doesn't mean that I'm not getting out and about so once we're done talking I'm probably going to grab my snowshoes and uh, take a train ride here about 45 minutes out of town and to do some snowshoeing in the mountains so but that's what I'm going to be limiting it to is I won't be doing any running this time around while I'm here um, just because I'm trying to take a break be smart about running. Definitely. Talking about winter versus summer, have you, you, I'm sure you visit um, back to Switzerland during the summertime, too. It's much different, correct? Yes. So the summers are significantly warmer um, here, not quite as humid, obviously, as in the southeastern states. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the Alps in the summertime are just as spectacular in the wintertime. And uh, I do quite a bit of running here whenever I'm here for work, uh, be it in the winter or the summertime. Um, you, you just have to have the right gear and you can run all year for sure. Definitely. You're originally from that part of the world, correct? Uh, so how, what's, the, what's the difference between for you living in Huntsville, Alabama versus uh, being in, in Europe? Well, so originally I'm from Germany, northern Germany, which is actually pretty flat. In fact, um, the southeastern states have more hills than uh, where I'm originally from. But um, honestly, when I lived in Germany, I spent half my life in the U.S. now. I really wasn't that much into running, um, so I couldn't really speak to how running is different different other than if we're talking about now. The one thing that is certainly different now is the uh, when you're running races in uh, Europe versus the U.S., the food choices and drink choices at aid stations are quite different, that's for sure. So so tell, tell us a particular, what are you talking about, food choices, drink choices? Um, well, if I just talk about UTMB, for example, they serve you um, baguettes, 
uh, with salami and cheeses. And uh, that's essentially what you get at every aid station. And then you can uh, select sparkling water or, or, you know, flat water, if you will. Um, and maybe some Coca-Cola when you, if you get lucky um, and some juices. But um, it's not really... It's quite different. The food is quite different here. Definitely. Uh, yesterday when I was running Blood Rock 50K, I, I had a bourbon shot uh, along the way. I, I told A Station that I'm coming <laughs> for a bourbon shot. I guess you don't have those. They don't there. do bourbon shots, but what they have started to do, believe it or not, at marathons is serve beer. Mostly it's alcohol-free, you know, non-alcoholic, but um, they do serve beer. They consider that a, a carbo-loading, believe it or not, during the race. <laughs> that's definitely interesting. Before we go on and um, you mentioned about Nepal I think that's our main part of the interview before we get there uh, tell us about your running background you mentioned just a little bit um, you and I we have run a couple of races last yes. race we ran was uh, I think Ben Hody um, uh, you took off and I never saw you again but <laughs> <laughs> that's as, as case for me you know I, I can go fast at the beginning and then die later but <laughs> that's that's a habit of mine but anyway tell us about your running background you you became quite a quite a runner over the years I have I watched you follow you um, you do so many different things uh, tell us about your running background especially ultra running sure I started running um, I did my first marathon I think 2008 or 2009 so not not even 10 years yet and um, within a year started training for my second marathon you know in those days it was one marathon a year so I started training for my second marathon and um, during that time my uh, a friend of mine introduced or talked to me about ultra marathons and I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, well, if you're training for a marathon at the time, it was the Rocket City Marathon, I think 2009. Uh, he said, we've got this local 50K called the Dizzy 50s. Um, that's actually directed by a friend of mine, Ryan Chafin now. But um, um, again, I was like, well, that's that's longer than a marathon. What are you talking about? He said, well, it's, it's a loop course. So really just you know, go out there with us, run as much as you want. You can quit any time. And um, that was that. I struggled mightily <laughs> in, my first, <laughs> in my first 50K. That was a, I think I had to walk the last 10 kilometers because uh, I was running it like a marathon. You know, I was clueless. I think I had been on trails maybe one time prior to that. So uh, <laughs> I think I finished in five hours, 59 minutes and 50 seconds or something like that. Uh, so it was quite the suffer fest. But um, within a week, I had signed up for Mountain Mist and Black Warrior and all kinds of other local races over the year. And um, I've been running ultras ever since. Um, I think I'm getting close to 100 races since then of marathon distance or longer. But to be honest, ultras, you know, trail races are really my uh, forte. I don't enjoy road races quite as much anymore as I, as I enjoy the, the trail races for sure. Funny thing you mentioned about your start in 2008. I started along around the same time running a marathon. I did a half earlier yes. that year and then started running full marathon um, 2008. I think that was my first. I think uh, we have very similar background. Looks like we have about, I'm, I just finished 92 marathons yep. and ultra. So, you know, for me, it's uh, going back and forth between the road and trail is what I like because that way I can keep a sanity of a running trail <laughs> That's, yeah. uh, versus running a road. You know, it's interesting. Uh, how many hundreds have you done so far? 
eight or nine. I think. Yeah. I, I honestly, I'd have to count through. I wouldn't want to do that now, but I, I know it's it definitely eight. It may be nine. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your favorite distance? Is and like I say, ultra and even in ultra, what is your favorite favorite distance? I enjoy the hundred mile distance, the challenge of a hundred mile distance, the most. Now, do I do well? Uh, I don't think so. Not really. But I do enjoy finishing the hundred mile distance. To be honest with you, these days, if it's got lots of climb, pain is is on the menu i'm in i don't know why but i just enjoy the mountainous races um the more climbing the better yeah definitely um, you're missing out on a blood rock we have we have a blood rock going on here right now uh, uh, yeah and, and I, I i heard about it i heard about it now and now you're saying i'm missing out but i'm actually tentatively signed up to help a uh, local runner uh, pace and crew a local runner so you may see me out there saturday if i can get out of bed i'm not flying back <laughs> in until late friday night <laughs> uh, definitely okay you, you will be back yeah yeah it was a 50k i have that was the most challenging 50k i have seen here in yeah. birmingham uh, i live close to the park and uh, I run that course but it was very interesting but that's uh, that's a blood rock event but um, the, he's a uh, race director David Toss is finding a trail that never existed or He's, he's 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 very creative in this race so very cool very cool so, so hopefully we're... hopefully i can make my way down there next saturday for the 50 mile 100 mile uh, distance that would be cool yeah come down i'll be i'll be there again trying to suffer yeah. suffer myself through so <laughs> uh let's move on uh let's talk about your trip to nepal uh, uh you had a quite a trip um that's a my dream trip kind of thing I wanted to do. Yep. Um, tell us about how, how did uh, your whole idea for going to Nepal started? Sure. So it's funny because it's actually the perfect time of year for us to talk about it because it really all started exactly a year ago. In fact, it started a year ago today, uh, the day after the Western States and Hard Rock lotteries that were Last year, as this year, um, unfortunately, quite the disappointment for myself as I did not make it into either. I know a lot of us feel the same way, and I don't know if you've saw, seen the results, but I don't think uh, anyone from Alabama even made it into Western States. That's year. what I heard. I haven't even been able yeah. to check it. So Yeah, so, and then, of course, with that taking place first, um, Hard Rock, uh, I did not fare any better there. But anyways, so... This was the situation last year as well, and of course, uh, immediately following that, you start thinking, okay, you know, now that I have these holes in my calendar, what's going to be the big adventure for the year? And um, I had been listening to uh, uh, another podcast at the time, uh, Talk Ultra. I don't know if you heard of that one. It's a Brit called Ian Corliss that, that moderates that. And he had just uh, come back and uh, done interviews of the 2016 edition of the Everest Trail Race. And uh, it was a two and a half or three hour podcast. In fact, I was listening to it while I was doing, um, I'm trying to remember if it was right before the lottery. I had listened to it before uh, while I was doing some hill repeats. And um, I remembered that it was quite intriguing, uh, running at Everest, right? I mean, I never thought about climbing Everest, but... But running in Nepal and seeing the Himalayas just sounded too good to be true and too good to be possible. Um, I figured it would probably cost an immense amount of money and training. And when neither Western States nor Hard Rock happened, I actually started looking at it a little bit more closely and looked at the registration process, which was quite interesting at the time. I could only find a Spanish website and then eventually found the English version as well. And I started talking to my company and um, I normally don't talk about my work, but I think it's worth mentioning that um, without the generosity of my employee uh, employer, Haufe, 
I would not have been able to do this. They, um, when I asked them if they would be interested to help me make this dream happen, um, they stepped up and said, you take care of your flight and your equipment and we'll take care of your registration. And so I have to thank them for doing that for me because I probably would not have been able to go without their support. Definitely. And anyway, so yeah, I uh, registered, made my intentions known to the race organization. There's quite a bit of paperwork involved, but it was fairly straightforward online and, was, and via some emails. And I think by January, I was um, pre-registered and um, I started the planning process. Nine months of um, logistics planning, um, you know, I, because I was the only one flying from the U.S., um, I arranged my own travel, but upon arrival at the hotel in Kathmandu, you know, the race organization took over and I met with the other racers. But yeah, it was nine months of planning. So what kind of uh, training uh, you put in uh, for Nepal? I mean, you know, in a, you're not used to the altitude. We're here in Birmingham. Right, We're not used right. to it. So again, there was quite a few challenging races that took place in last year, and that was kind of all building towards the Fat Dog 120 in British Columbia. I did that in August, and that race itself has 29 or 30,000 feet of vert over 120 120 or so miles. And then in between, there was a couple of 100Ks in the Alps and 50Ks, uh, the quest for the crest on the East Coast um, that has, you know, 12,000 feet of vert. And basically, I looked anything that had over 10,000 feet and was 50K or longer, I signed up for. I mean, that's essentially how <laughs> how, my, how my training plan went. And um, I think by the time I towed the line in uh, Ajiri, Nepal, I had racked up about 300,000 feet of vert over the year. That definitely got me ready for the climbing. The altitude, um, I actually uh, was able to work remotely for uh, about a week or a week and a half uh, in Colorado. So I rented a room in Leadville, which is at about just above 10,000 feet. And I knew that the highest point during the Everest race would be around 12, 13,000 feet. And I figured if I can acclimate little bit and get to some 14ers while I was in Colorado that um, hopefully I would acclimate to the altitude and I could carry that over to the trip to Nepal. Definitely. Uh, tell us about the, your visit to Kathmandu. I was born and raised in Kathmandu, so that, that's okay, my city. Okay. Uh, it, used to be, it used to be very much laid back when, when I was growing up, and it's now a hustling and bustling city. Yeah, um, My house used to be part of the villas, you know, out in the country, and we're connected yeah. to the downtown, and everything's connected downtown, like a half a mile, a mile from the downtown and the heart of the city. But tell yeah. us about your experience in Kathmandu. I saw your sure. video <laughs> from Kathmandu. Yeah, exactly. So I um, arrived um, in Kathmandu um, about two days before we left for making our way to the race start. Um, and the first day I had kind of by myself. And I was about five minutes from the Tamil district. I think I pronounced yeah. that correctly. Yeah, Tamil. Tamil. Uh, which is kind of the, I guess you would call it the tourist district or the downtown area where all the shopping is done, if you will, for us Westerners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, my kids love that street too. We end up, yeah. we end up when we were oh, in yeah. Nepal. But yeah, we local don't usually visit that area. So Exactly. But um, making my way, there was about a 10, 15 minute walk from the hotel. And um, that's where I captured that video that I showed you. I was almost standing in the middle of the street there and just kind of filming the, the noise and the, the cars and the motorcycles and scooters and bikes and foot traffic. And the cars. Oh, and the cows. Although I got to say, I only saw one cow in the city. So, um, and that was almost uh, on the last day before I flew back, which was the first time I'd seen a cow in the city. Yeah. Now, once we got out of the city, of course, you know, yeah. immediately there was and, an influx yeah. in there. 
Yeah, in the in the city we have a street cow, so that's a that's a totally yeah. different story. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was crazy. So it was the colors, the noise uh, were spectacular. Of course, you can't, you know, everyone that does go to Kathmandu now, you will notice the air. Um, it's quite thick um, as a result of the dirt. I don't think it's the same type of pollution that you would see in China, for example. It's just the dirt, the dust from the roads when it's dry. It's dry, you know, yeah. and uh, with all the traffic that's going on there, it, uh, I very quickly realized that uh, those face masks they were selling at every corner, they can give you a little bit of comfort for sure. Definitely. Uh, one other thing about Kathmandu, it, it used to be a lake. Uh, those uh, soils never, never settled. So that, though, that's one of the reasons you see a dust everywhere, in you know, the dust yeah. everywhere. So yeah, after the rain, monsoon rain, you you wouldn't have no dust. You'll have mud like a trail runner. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, think I, I think I prefer the dust. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Tell us about now. Now you you had to go to Jiri. Uh, I I think I met I met that group that you went with um, the Everest uh, marathon when I was in Nepal. Um, I was going to Lukla and they're going to Jiri. I remember that they they were flying in. Did you fly into Jiri or you, no, you no, took no, a no. bus? So there's two groups. I think. Well, there's two groups, right? You've got the Everest Marathon, and those guys, I think they do a trek. They fly into Lukla and then make their way. I'm not sure, but we saw them actually in um, in one of the checkpoints. They were standing at one of the lodges that we had at one of our finish line areas, and they were still tracking towards the race start, I think. Uh, but anyways, yeah, we actually had, uh, we were a convoy of four vans um, that carried about eight to nine runners each. We, I think we ended up with 52 or 55 runners plus staff and it was a nine and a half hour bus uh, van ride to Jiri and I'm not sure if you've ever gone from Kathmandu to Jiri but um, that was a, a huge adventure in and of itself <laughs> I've never been to Jiri so, th- so I think there's a lot of roads are, are because of the monsoon and the earthquake I think and there's yeah. some issue in those roads so that most definitely added to it um, by the way um, very resilient people the Nepali people I will say that that um, uh, you wouldn't see everyone smiling like that after if, if the U.S. had go through that type of uh, natural disaster. I don't think there was a lot of rebuilding going on. Um, you saw a lot of that, a lot of construction everywhere, not just in Kathmandu, but even outside Kathmandu and road construction. Just um, a lot of work going on, trying trying to rebuild the infrastructure. But of course, with the earthquakes and any other natural disasters, comes some rough riding on roads. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It was a a single lane um, road through the mountains along uh, along a gorge, I guess, to make our way to Jiri. And, um, and by the way, those are not single lane. Single lane from for American, we drive here. <laughs> <laughs> those well, are, those are... Still, yeah, two lane highways. They certainly didn't feel like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially not when you looked out the window and and your driver was actually attempting on this narrow one lane road to pass. <laughs> Pass another car while honking the horn for oncoming traffic that's yep. coming in that 90-degree turn. So um, let me just say this. I was glad that I had popped a couple of motion sickness pills beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So you, you arrived at Ziri. Uh, what is the setup for, for you guys at the Ziri area? So. So we arrived in Jiri, and of course, lots of locals out there. The kids were actually playing football, you know, soccer um, at the campsite. And the way that worked, we, we hiked our gear in about about five, ten minute walk uh, down to a big uh, meadow in a valley. 
And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but it's kind of funny that we're talking while I'm in Switzerland because the mayor of Yuri, Yuri welcomed us and informed us that G was actually known as the Switzerland of Nepal. Hmm. So I thought it was interesting, and uh, and I had actually seen that on Facebook, believe it or not, when you were trying to pinpoint your location. That's actually what came up. So interesting. Um, and that's but anyways, interesting. it was yeah, it was this beautiful green, large, you know, field, if you will, that they had set up twenty five or thirty tents for the runners. Um, we were always on one side of the camp, and on the other side of the camp, you'd have the big tents and and dining hall for the support crew. And there would be two runners to each tent. And you were assigned um, pre- beforehand who you were going to be rooming with. And my roommate, tent mate, was a uh, runner from France. He was the only Frenchman and I was the only American slash German. So um, it was interesting. Uh, he We managed. Thankfully, he spoke English because I do not speak French. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that worked out just fine. And there were lots larger contingents from Spain and Britain and then a couple Portuguese and uh, and and uh, Colombian, Argentinian, Mexican runners, so uh, and a couple of Italians, but mostly the languages spoken in camp were either Spanish or English. Gotcha. So you, you got there. Um, so how does the race day starts for for you guys? I mean, is, okay. it, is it a race race or is it a, a stage yeah. race or how, how yeah. does that work? Sure. So so the way this race is set up, it's uh, you know if you take uh, out the travel there and then the the flight back, like I said, which were both quite the adventures. It is six days of racing. It's a stage race. You cover a hundred miles over six days, which you and I know. You know we've done that and more or less. A day before right and that doesn't Definitely. sound so bad right yeah. you like no. oh, it's not so bad no no but, <laughs> but what uh, when you see the elevation profile you realize that this race is no joke uh, it's forty-five thousand feet of vertical gain and that means that essentially you know everest has a height of thirty thousand feet so and that's from sea level so essentially uh, during the course of this week you're climbing everest one and a half times from sea level, um, just to kind of put that in perspective. And you're doing that over very short distances because, you know, if you cut down the stages, they were anywhere from 20 to 40 kilometers. You know, everything is in kilometers there and and meters. But um, it was um, extremely steep terrain and for the most part runnable, but some quite technical sections as well. It's usually, it was usually very rocky. Thankfully, it wasn't loose rock, uh, except for a couple of sections where there was when you were coming down a mountain but uh, mostly it was firm rock and as long as it was dry you had stable footing but it, it was definitely technical definitely uh, one of the thing I like just like to mention to all the listener here that uh, the trail that you ran um, these are actually people go up and down this, this is the main highway for them oh, yes. to go from yes. this t- village to village town oh, to town yes. these are not the uh, t- trail that we see like Oak Mountain <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? no. these are actual ways of traffic and uh, in fact the first three days um, I, I guess I can give you a quick routine of a day so go ahead. yeah the way it would normally work is we'd get uh, the Sherpa would wake us up either at 5 or 5.30. Um, after the first stage, they split us up in two groups, an early, an early start group and a, you know, the second start group would start an hour later. 
And so they would wake us up 5 a.m. and 5.30 respectively with a hot cup of Sherpa tea. Um, and by the way, I mentioned this briefly how resilient they are, but they're also the most friendly people I have ever met, the most accommodating people I've ever met. There was a support crew of uh, the Spanish staff and local Sherpa and porters and cooks and just amazing bunch of people. There was a hundred over 160 people supporting this, this race for um, 55 runners. Wow. Um, it was quite the accomplishment. And, and when you don't know the area, you do, right? It's, it's these long trails. And the only way they can set up these camps is following the same trails that we are running. So they actually set up two or three campsites in parallel in order to support us because they would not have enough time to get ahead of us to set up the camp for the next night. Gotcha. So it was quite the logistical undertaking, and I have to say it was probably the most perfectly executed race I have ever been part of, be it single stage or multi stage. It was it was absolutely amazing. Um. Anyway, so we would start get woken up uh, with a hot cup of tea, which was fantastic uh, during the cold nights. You know, you didn't have to climb out of your sleeping bag yet. You would just drink a hot cup of tea. Uh, you'd kind of wake up. You'd make your way to the breakfast tent, the dining hall. It was this long, long tent that had this long table in there where all 50 of us would sit to eat breakfast. There would be different spreads, um, oatmeal and cereals and bread and some eggs for some folks. And uh, it was always uh, pretty carb intensive, which, of course, is uh, staple food you know the, the the nepali diet is very rich in carbs it's mostly vegetarian and um carbs of course is exactly what you need during an event like that when you have to keep going out there and covering that type of distance so that was great we'd start the stage either at 7 a.m or 8 a.m and then we would run anywhere from you know the fast guys the fastest stage in under three hours and then uh, the the slower guys the slowest stage was 13 hours so that's what the days would look like depending on the length and uh, the amount of climbing and descending you had to do and uh, first three days it was very quiet there was no not a lot of traffic along the trails um, but the closer we got to Everest, um, you started to have the base camp trackers and the porters bringing um, supplies uh, of all sorts to the different um, villages and tea houses along the trail. And uh, the things that I saw people carrying and just, uh, I mean, there was, we're talking about sheets of plywood, eight feet by 10 feet large on the back of a, of a porter. Yak would be transporting gas canisters, you know, propane canisters. Uh, it was just uh, incredible how they managed to transport all these supplies to all these remote places absolutely amazing it's it's amazing to see that uh, i saw that too once you pass lukla area this i mean i, I haven't been to Ajiri to lukla but lukla yeah. to namche you yeah. see all kind of stuff and then there's there's donkeys to yaks to uh, human carrying stuff from yeah. uh, one of the thing i was told also that um, they carry everything that that you can get on the top that's how uh, they all been carried and the uh, price goes accordingly higher up i remember buying a water for what 10 rupees and then there's 150 rupees so that's the you oh, can, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Can... and honestly um <laughs> it's a funny story because i I remember I had a very rough patch on day three, I believe it was. It was very rough. Um, my body felt fine, but uh, I was not uh, enjoying the uh, the energy bars that were being supplied, so I just didn't eat them. And that had, I did that during the longest stage, and I ended up with uh, low levels of energy. And all that got me to the finish was these... Uh, 
this wishful thinking that somehow magically in this remote place I would be able to get a Coca-Cola. <laughs> and I was able to get a Coca-Cola. <laughs> exactly. They're everywhere. Yeah. I, I had I had my moment of those too when I was traveling through that. Uh, but I was I was just going to go to look like Namche. That's only about my goal. Three days, go up and down, come back. Then um, I, I traveled really fast. Um, I think yours was just staged and kind of trying to get used to the altitude. For me, it was just not, I didn't have much time. So I kept on going and going. I cover from Lukla to Namche in one day. So there yep. was there was a it's doable distance eight point nine miles almost nine miles. Uh, oh yeah, no, we covered that and uh, we actually went from Tengboche back to Lukla and you know Namche is between there. We did that on the last day. The, the entire last thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a, that, so, that's a quite a yeah. quite a hike though. Oh yeah, I mean that that was running. I mean it was a lot of downhill coming out of Tengboche and then there was a couple of climbs there on the last stage and uh, I think it took me to cover that. I try to remember. Was it four hours somewhere in there? Um, bad memory now. It was six <laughs> stages, but uh, it was one of my better days. And you know, when you know it's the last day, you can kind of put the hammer down because you know you don't have to do it again the next day. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I was I wanted to mention about the running and uh, that area. Yeah. I remember almost like what you talk about. As I was coming back, I didn't have much time, and I, was, I had to run a little bit. And one of the uh, lady came out of her house or shop. She started screaming at me. It's like in Nepali, you know. She yeah. said, "Don't go too fast. You're gonna fall down. This is not a good place." <laughs> <laughs> it really scared me oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. because they don't like us to run. I did see some runners coming down the hill, like you know, because I think coming back will be pretty down. Did you stay in Luk- uh, Namche? No, we actually went through Namche on the way to Tengboche, and um, I'm trying to remember. There was another checkpoint after Namche, and I, I can't think of the name right now. Before uh, really, I, I I jumped gun. Um, uh, before uh, we you get to the Nanche, you 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 had those double bridge, uh, double what do you call hanging bridge a picture. Yes, yes. That um, yes. that is the place where I decided whether I want to continue to Nanche that day or stay down because it's, it's a quite a climb and quite a uh, elevation change from that point to the Nanche. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, tell us about uh, that whole. I, I don't remember much, but I know it's like really tough climb. That's the only thing I remember. So yeah. So we ended up. And to be honest with you, the different there was always a massive climb at the end, almost. That's what it felt like at every stage. <laughs> um, and then there was uh, one or two more in, inside there. But I, I know there was um, once we got to the bridges, that was actually that was kind of in the I guess it's called the Kumbu Valley. Uh-huh. part of the Kumbu Valley down there. And we kind of ran along that river um, for a while, and that's actually where that one morning where most, I think it was stage three, where we ended up, fine, oh, stage three or four, where we finally got into um, the traffic of the, of the base camp trackers. So at that point, we really, initially it was all about getting used to the technical terrain and you know trying not to beat yourself up too badly on the descents. Um, because on the essence, uh, other than uh, a couple of the front runners, there uh, was one Nepali gentleman that ended up winning the race, followed by a current uh, sky running world champion, Luis Alberto from Spain. And they were running some of the hills, but even they had to uh, speed hike some of those sections because the terrain was just too steep and too technical. But anyway, so you'd always have to kind of, um, you'd almost use the climbing as recovery for the 
sustained descents you you had coming coming up, and and they were just as tough, if not tougher, than than the climbs. And come to find out, that's actually where the Nepali runners really uh, separated themselves from the field is on the downhills, not on the climbs. Strangely enough, oh, gotcha. um, you right. I mean, you would have think. You would have thought, oh, it's on the climbing, they're going to sh- shred the other elite runners, but it was really on the descents. They were so fast going down on these steep, you know, 10-kilometer, six-mile descents. It was it was incredible. Um, but anyway, getting back to the bridge, so that's, I believe it's called the uh, Hillary Bridge, if I remember the information we received correctly, and it was absolutely spectacular. But yeah, um, the climb, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember just to give you, because they all kind of ended up being the same thing and none of the climbs was less than uh, at least 1500 feet over maybe a mile i mean there was some crazy steep ascents and um, most often they were basically steps cut into the rock or you know they were steps created from rocks and um, you would climb for hours on end on some of these ascents. We had uh, quite a few stages where that was like that. I mean, if you're looking at 45,000 feet of gain um, over just 100 miles, that's a lot of climbing to squeeze into these shorter stages. And like I said, the shortest stage we had was 30 and the longest was just under 40 kilometers. So um, that's a lot of climbing to do. Yeah, and definitely. So- and last day of the day, to second day to last, we had a moment where the, we could actually do about five or six miles of running on what <laughs> I would loosely call rolling terrain um, through some villages. But for the most part, either you were going straight up with, uh, if you were smart, with the help of trekking poles, or you would grab those trekking poles because you were ready, getting ready for a 5K or 10K descent, um, trying to make up some of that time that you may have lost on the climb. So any of those climbs, you just kind of, <laughs> you know, I would I would always pull my hat down so I couldn't really see the top because you couldn't see it anyway. And it was just one of those, okay, I'm just going to climb until it's over. Because, um, you know, I know how some people get fooled or lulled in by false summits and I did not fall prey. I did not want to fall prey to that. So I just kept my head down and kept climbing and kept smiling as, at the kids as they were passing me. <laughs> uh, and I uh, just continued to push on and just enjoyed the whole experience. Tell us about your uh, tongue butcher. How, how, how many days did you stay in and just the one one day stay one, oh, overnight? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we only, uh, the entire race was six days and it was uh, fairly routine. We, we oh. wake up at 5 or 5.30, we'd, um, we'd or, uh, get a re- race brief during breakfast, uh, we'd pick up a liter of water, um, we'd look at the profile, and like I said, we know we'd have to do either 20, 30, 40K, um, we'd get to the start line, they send us off, there would be two to three checkpoints along the way, where we would get another liter of water, and some nuts, or dried fruit, or maybe some gels, and um, once we crossed the finish line, it was time to start recovery. Um, everyone, of course, had their own plans. They, uh, like I said, they took very good care of us. Um, we had, you know, part of the race. I, I don't think I mentioned that. You know, it's it's semi-self-supported. That means we carried everything we needed except uh, food and the tents. So, so you had to carry all, all your sleeping bags and clothes and jackets. Yes. And everything. Okay. Yes. 
everything you needed, not just for the six days, but for the day before and after you had to carry. So, um, but you don't have to carry the food, you're saying? Not like a... No, they provided the food, you know, they cooked the food, uh, they set up the tents, um, but you had to carry any clothing, any toilet paper, first aid kit, running clothes, whatever, you know, camp clothes you needed. You had to carry all of that. So for for this trip, uh, did you uh, did you have a special shoes? And uh, end up buying a shoes when I was in Nepal. I was everybody said, oh, I gotta get trekking shoes and this shoes and that's end up buying a shoes. No, no. I wore my usual Ultra Lone Peak three point five. They worked. They worked great. Um, I had uh, one of the Ultra Elite runners was there as well. And Sandra Amdahl from Norway, and he uh, placed third overall, and we both, you know, those shoes were perfect. So anyone going there, whatever trail shoes you use in the U.S., they work just fine there as well. Yeah, I wish I would have done that because I ended up buying a bigger shoes uh, than I needed. And yeah. The size was a little bigger because I didn't realize that. And then um, it got really bad on, on descent. I had really had a bad descent yep. coming back yep. because if your shoes are not perfect, your you know, feet are moving around. So Yeah, now, so with that said, I am pro to blisters on long descents as I've experienced at a um, couple of races, a couple of hundred milers, but, you know, UTMB in particular, my feet were minced meat after these descents. So again, being semi-self-supported, you had to bring whatever first aid kit you needed, even though they had medical staff. But um, I ended up taping my heels starting after day three, and that ensured that I had no no blisters whatsoever uh, during the duration of the race. There was some hot spots, but thankfully I addressed that. And it's definitely something you need to be aware of is this foot care. So for the quick review for the listener, what kind of equipments uh, and things that you had you, you had for, for this adventure or any, any adventure in the Himalayas like that? So gear? Gear-wise, uh-huh. Yeah, so... Sleeping bag was the most important piece of uh, gear, I would say. Um, you don't want to skimp on that. I have read, and it was hard to get some information about this race, but I've read about some of the elites really struggling to get any sleep because they skimped on the, on the sleeping bag, meaning they went too light and not warm enough. And so they were not really able to recover that well. That I was very aware of that. And I actually went with a, um, a mummy-style sleeping bag that is actually called a quilt from a U.S.-based company. And they um, it was perfect. It was rated to minus 15 Celsius. Um, I'm thinking it's about yeah, 5 Fahrenheit. And um, I, I knew I did not want to be cold at night. I wanted to be able to get some sleep. Um, and so that was the... The, the heaviest piece of gear, it, it only weighed in in just about, I think, a uh, pound and a half, something like that. It was very light. It was very light. Um, definitely the most expensive ge- piece of gear I had as well, but so, oh so important in an event like that. Uh, the usual running clothes, you know, whatever you wear, shorts, shirt. I had compression sleeves and, and socks uh, and running shoes. Um, I did not pack any spare shirt or shorts. I knew I would be running in the same kit for a week and i knew from reading other reports and other stage races that that's usually how everyone does it and guess what you know um, we all gonna stink for six days so <laughs> you just got to deal with it um i did bring an extra pair of socks because i was afraid that maybe we hit water or rain and that was important um i carried um, a lot of mandatory gear you had to have long tights you had to have a long shirt you had to have a warm jacket like down star uh, type uh, jacket uh, rainproof gear, long pants, long ja- uh, jacket, of course. They had to be, you know, waterproof. Uh, gloves, winter hat. Then I had a couple of buffs kind of using as a multi-purpose, you know, as a 
in the morning when it was cold um, and you could use it as a washcloth as well if you had the opportunity to freshen up a little bit. Some arm sleeves, a windbreaker, um, never needed it. We really, well, I mean, I kind of was quite a lot of shivering going on in the early mornings when before the sun came out. Um, but once the sun was out, it warmed up very quickly. That's the one thing I noticed uh, when I was traveling too. I thought I needed uh, to have an extra clothes, extra stuff. Uh, then I realized, yeah. you know, how quickly it gets hot and how quickly yeah. it gets cold. So. Yeah. So we had to prepare for temperatures at night ranging down towards uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 80, 85 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. So it's a pretty wide range. So layering is key, you know, making sure that you have the clothes you need in camp to be warm and even layer inside your sleeping bag if needed. In addition to that, first aid kit, again, everyone's different there. I kept it light. I made sure I brought some antibiotics, some memodium uh, for obvious reasons, some tape, and that was it. And and of course, toilet paper. Again, personal preference, uh, what you take, <laughs> but something you don't want to forget. So, um, yeah. Definitely. Uh, talk about uh, you went all the way to Tangbuche. One of the persons said that the speed that now I was trekking and you guys are running, you're uh, not that far out, you know, about two days, three days to the base camp. So maybe we need to make a trip out there sometime. So Yeah, actually, they said at our pace, we were talking to uh, one of the staff. They said we probably could have made it to base camp within a day from there, from Tangbuche, based on the pace that we were you know running the race essentially so uh, so we were thinking about uh, doing that afterwards via helicopter but it just felt like cheating so we actually decided nah we'll probably just it'll just give us a reason to come back come back in the yeah future. that's a yeah. beautiful area that whole tongue which you can see the everest oh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, amazing it was yeah. probably Actually, no, probably. It was most definitely the most spectacular finish line I've ever crossed with Everest, Lhotse, and Amadablam in the background. Uh, it was just spectacular. So we got to see the sunset. We got to see the sunrise. We saw the clouds move in. We saw the clouds move out. Um, I don't think I've ever taken so many pictures of the same view. <laughs> and, and it changes. And there's oh, actually, yeah. there was a Korean uh, monument or something like that up in the hill. Uh, on uh, If you look at the cross from the, what do you call, Goomba, what, what do you call, uh, monster. The, the, Tangbuche Monastery, Yeah, yes. the Tangbuche Monastery. There's a, there's a hill, so a lady told me, like, oh, you, you need to go up there. So it was a little yeah. climb and I went there while they were making the food. I don't know if you ever went there, but the, if you ever go that way, there's a hill and you can see beautiful, the monastery and then the whole area, you can see it from the top. I I got some pictures. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. we we stayed at that lodge there. Um, that was one of the luxury stays, I guess, if uh. you will. <laughs> Although I got to say, it was funny. Um, in fact, just after three days, every single runner was more comfortable in the tent than anywhere else. It was almost <laughs> like. Uh, you know, we kind of like the tents. We kind of gotten used to the tents. Um, we sleep well in the tents now. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, uh, you very quickly get used to a certain way of life. It's, it's pretty amazing. Definitely. Uh, did you get any, any sickness uh, that, that high up? Uh... Um, I personally did not. Uh, one of the, um, there was a Portuguese lady, Esther Alves. She's um, also happens to be quite the accomplished ultra runner. She was experiencing, not in Tengboche, I think it was after stage two, we had climbed um, Pikey Peak and we stayed the night at about 12,500 feet. That's where they set up camp, just below the peak. And um, she was having issues with uh, swollen hands, fingers, feet, everything. And there was a lot of folks with some dizziness and just uh, yeah. lightheadedness. Um, of course, we all 
experienced um, heavy breathing. Just the, the air is just so much thinner. Yeah, heavy breathing, coughing, dry coughing. The cough. The, yeah. the sleepless, it, yeah. sleepless yeah, we, nights. <laughs> yeah, we call it the Everest Trail Cough. Um, we may not have had it on day three, but by, by the time the race was over, I finally got it as well. I had gotten, I had stayed clear of that cough for almost the entire race so i was pretty lucky <laughs> uh definitely tell tell us about your uh, trip back to lukla uh you raced it's a tango right. to look like look like it's a quite a trip uh, yes. it's uh, often you're gonna you descend pretty pretty fast um on yes. that you know you yeah. start about four thousand, then you're down to 2700 uh, meters so that's meters, it yeah so essentially all the way to Namche Bazaar, we came back the same way that we went out. Um, that was the only time we went on the same trails. But as a result, I also knew it was game on for me. You know, I had been taking, I don't know if you followed along my blog, but I'd, you know, I'd taken quite a few pictures at every stage. Uh, I made it a point to stop and smell the roses because, you know, you never know if you ever, you know, this is the trip of a lifetime. Yes, it's a race, but I wanted to make some memories as well. And, um, so on the last day, um, there was an opportunity for me to still make make up a spot in the standings, you know, move a little bit uh, higher in the top 10. And um, I decided to leave the phone, the camera stuck in my vest and um, to actually race, race. And so I, <laughs> so I lined up just behind the really fast guys. And I mean, it was fast and it was furious and it was uh, a bit scary actually because that drop from Tangboche down is extremely steep and you really just kind of free falling forward and uh, it was probably the most exciting stage of the race for me because I mean the the speed that we were going at was breakneck speed and um, (laughs) we were lucky because we started early enough that we avoided on that initial descent we avoided the large crowds all the foot traffic coming through there so once we got to the bottom, uh, traffic picked up immediately around, um, also once we got to Hillary Bridge, there was a lot of trackers and a lot of uh, yak and mule trains. And, and that actually, uh, as mentioning earlier, days four, five, and six, it became more and more of a challenge during the race. It, it's a beautiful part of the entire experience, but it most definitely added a whole new dimension to the race, right? Because um, you kind of have to decide on, you know, is it important to go here through here fast or in one piece <laughs> as, you're, <laughs> as you're dodging yaks that uh, you would not be able to move with a dump truck, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and especially those bridges, uh, either, either, either yak yes. crosses or you. So. Yeah, although I had a couple of encounters only, thankfully, there was some folks that didn't bear so well. Um, well I was on the middle of the bridge kind of squeezing to the side and hoping that the yak's horn wouldn't accidentally catch me as it was passing me on those hanging bridges. I got to say, uh, I, I, I used to be a lot more scared of heights. Nepal really, I uh, think, made me more comfortable with that. I mean, when you there's something to be said about being stuck in the middle of a hanging bridge with a yak, with a train of yaks barreling down on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not attempt that. that <laughs> I said, nah, I let them pass. Yeah, it was it was interesting. <laughs> Tell me about Luke last minute night and Luke. I didn't get to see a whole lot, but you, you yeah. saw that you saw the airport, uh, the most oh, the dangerous yeah. airport, uh, you oh, know. Yeah. So Lukla was, you know, while Tengboche was probably the, the prettiest finish line, Lukla was, of course, the final finish line where the entire race finished. I had a, like I said, a pretty good day, and uh, so I got there in the middle of the day. 
just early enough where it was okay to have an avarice beer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so got myself situated, uh, got out of the running clothes and kind of strolled through town with with a couple of fellow runners. And first thing we did is we had to see Lukla Airport, just like you mentioned, National Geographic calls it the world's most dangerous airport. And uh, we were scheduled to fly back to Kathmandu from there the next morning. It, it, it was incredible. Um, just taking the pictures of the runway to kind of get the perspective. I think that runway is no more than 500 meters or you know about 1,500 feet long. Um, and um, if you are landing, you're basically going uphill into the mountain over on this short runway. So the pilots have to hit the brakes right away and they have to hit the runway right away as they are coming in. And if you're leaving... Um, you want to make sure your your pilot takes off before you're going off the cliff, essentially. So yeah. they they only had a one big accident there. That's what I heard. I, I, yeah, I don't want to be traveling and be a second one, but no. But they've had. I think they had more than one. Um, at least I saw a couple of videos and I stopped watching them because I did. <laughs> not something you want to picture. No, no. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I. Because I heard you yeah. had a descent, like a, you know, Kathmandu to Lukla. That's uh, one thing to, for for listener. Like you mentioned, uh, Martin, that uh, you took you one day trip to Ziri. Ziri is the closest place. One day trip to Ziri. Then you, what, three three days to Lukla, then Tangbutse. So it, it's it's a quite a hike. Uh, but to get to Lukla, from Lukla is a kind of gateway uh, to yeah. to the whole Everest region. So, I mean, um, right. it saves you a lot of time, you know, if you don't have yes. time. Time is pressing them. That's the only way you get. And then it's hard, yeah. to, hard to get in and out once the weather pattern changes from Kathmandu yeah. to Lukla. I mean, there's so many different weather pattern there, and they cancel the flight like nobody's business. Yep, we, that was actually the case for our crew. So, um, of course, after finding the one Irish pub in town that evening to celebrate our finish, um, we had to fly out the next morning, and um, they had to separate us into four flights. And um, we got back to Kathmandu about 10 a.m., and uh, the fourth flight didn't get back until 5 p.m. because of just that. They shut down. Kathmandu airport and as a result uh, Lukla could not depart for Kathmandu so absolutely there's very small weather windows sometimes they close unexpectedly and then they reopen so it's a hit and miss and you can get stuck on either end for quite a while. Yeah, I heard um, uh, in the Lukla, uh, people can get stuck from days and days because, yeah. they, like you said, you know, they finish all the trekking, they're happy, drinking, spending all the money they have remaining now. Then yeah. you get stuck for so many days. That's what I heard. But that's uh, that's one of the only risky part. In a, you know, a risky part to go up there anyway, but one of yeah. the getting out is really difficult. They're, they're trying to uh, get as close as possible to the road, build a road, but, but the yeah. local local don't want to build a road to Lukla or anything like that, so that's what I heard. But Yeah, hopefully not. I Actually, we had um, at the closing ceremony back in Kathmandu the day after we got back there, um, we had the Minister of Tourism of Nepal you know, welcoming us, and it was actually one of the things he said, which I was actually very excited to hear, so that they are not planning to improve the infrastructure in that area or build roads in that area because it would take away from that experience. And and that is true 100%. Um, I think it would most definitely take away if they were to develop it beyond what is necessary, I guess. Um, definitely. It's there now, so... Yeah, that's that's the whole beauty of uh, traveling, trekking. Yes. And so, Martin, yeah, you have such a, a great experience. Like you said, it's so hard to fit in everything in one podcast. Uh, 
tell us one of one of the biggest highlight for uh, of your trip uh, that you that you're gonna keep for your rest of life. I know you you talked about the mountains, people, hills, uh, running, racing. So tell us about yeah. uh, one or two experiences that that you're gonna keep for your rest of your life. Okay, so if I have to, I cannot do it in one. I'll try in two. So first of all, the friends I've made, the, the, the people that I raced with from the top elite runners to the back of the packers that were just out there to take it all in. The friends I've made there will last a lifetime. You know, the people in general. I mean, that's the one thing, the point I want to make the Nepali people, the Sherpa, the crew made this such an amazing experience, always smiling. Um, I don't think I've experienced this anywhere else in the world and I've traveled quite a bit. And then the from a racing perspective, you know personal experience perspective the one highlight of the race for me was actually and i you know, we obviously talked about it at end already but arriving at the tengboche finish line where you're seeing everest just right there in front of you if you will um i think that was probably the most special moment in racing for me and so that'll stay with me and that'll probably stay in the back of my head um every year when i try to decide is it is it time to go back yet should i should i go back this year or should i wait another year <laughs> yeah definitely i tried that that always sticks sticks in my mind too it's like yeah have is a mountain mountains calling me or not it was a perfect yeah. timing when i went there that that year i only yeah. had three three days i wish i had I stayed a little bit longer but you know how it goes in life so um yeah but i'm definitely going back no question about it yeah definitely um i, I like you i had opportunity to fly in the helicopter into the base camp and yeah <laughs> for some cheap rice helicopter local yeah. their local people were going to put me in and then then uh, I said, nah, I'm going to have to do this on my feet. <laughs> I may fly out of it, but I'm, yeah. not, I'm not flying hey, in. That's how we ultra runners do, right? We <laughs> run. <laughs> Definitely. It uh, sounds like you had a, such a great time. If you had to go do it again, it looks like you're going to do it again. If you, Absolutely. You're going to go all the way in uh, to the base camp. Uh, uh, well, I heard that getting to the base camp is not as fantastic as, as it sounds. Uh, correct. Uh, correct. But, but at least at least that's that's what we want to do. We, we will never be mountain climber. We have friends. I have friends here who are yeah. mountain climber who are trying to attempt the Everest uh, I'll be never like them, but uh, but overall, um, it looks like you had a great experience. Uh, Martin, before we close this interview, give a word of advice to all the listeners uh, listening to our interview, thinking about going out far away places, having experience like you, adventures. Uh, give a word of advice why they should uh, take this adventure and take a leap of faith and then see the world. Well, because um, if you have that opportunity, you should always take it. Um, if you wait... I think um, you will most de- and don't do it. You will most definitely regret it. Um, I have yet to regret any of the adventures that I've had the opportunity to, to participate in. So, definitely, if you get the opportunity, take it. If you have the thought of uh, trying something out, do it. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not a- afraid of some pain and some running and some some running, maybe some extra long distances and. Um, if you get to do it in an amazing place, you get that opportunity, absolutely take it. Not, not a question in my mind. Great. Uh, thanks for your advice and thanks for your time uh, while you are traveling. And I will see you next week. And uh, go enjoy the uh, nice Alps and Switzerland and enjoy the, the snow. For sure. Thank you so much, Suman. I appreciate it. And thanks for your time. We'll, uh, we'll see you next weekend, maybe. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to another episode of Embrons Podcast. Please visit embrons.com to listen to previous podcast shows, links to our social media channels. Please follow Marathon Runs on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For recent updates, race photos, 
discount codes, and more.